Thank you, Pam. Uh, does anyone else in the room speak Spanish? Would you raise your hand if you do? Anyone? How'd she do? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm sure she did fine. I knew the word casa. That's how I knew to stand up. Um, please pray with me. We're looking at uh, uh, this, this beautiful woman who is also a mom uh, teaching us some things this morning about what it means to see with the eyes of Christ. So let's pray together. Father, we just pause now and thank you that we have the privilege of gathering within these walls. Father, mindful that we live in a world filled with suffering. Our prayer, Father, is that you would uh, shape us to be people of hope by receiving, first of all, all that you have to offer us and then by being relentlessly involved in your story, Father, with perseverance, even as we've already heard embodied in the work you're doing in Roble Alto. Thank you so much. We'll give you thanks for all of this in Christ's name we pray, amen. I actually had prepared as an introduction a story of a, a migrant woman from Honduras, her family, uh, was held hostage by a gang. They escaped. They made their way to Mexico uh, on a train en route to um, San Diego. Their family got separated. The dad was with their 17-month-old daughter. The mom with her other two children. They get to the border. The dad uh, is arrested. The daughter is uh, taken to Texas. The mom ends up in San Francisco with a relative. And then there's a lengthy story of her relentless pursuit to be reunited with her daughter. Very powerful story. Pam has shared similar stories, not only in this service, but in every service, so that we t collectively are mindful, uh, as at the outset of our time together this morning, mindful that we live right now in a time of migration crisis that is global, pandemic, and Hundreds of thousands, if not over a million moms are shepherding their children through homelessness and migration and immigration. And so this, this story is, is framing some of that this morning. And we can learn from this woman's commitment to the well-being of her child in this story. Because this commitment to the well-being of the other is really what it means to be made in God's image. It's a characteristic of God, as we'll see. And so this, the story, in, uh, the mom in this story reveals three qualities that we're really gonna hone in on. Uh, compassion, persistence, and humility, but we're gonna hone in on that by looking at what I call a three-act play. The first act kind of setting the stage by introducing you to all the players, and then a little point and counterpoint between Jesus and the woman. But we're gonna spend most of the time in act one. So as I'm still in act one, 20 minutes from now, don't panic. Mother's Day lunch, you'll be fine, right? So, so uh, key players in the story, Jesus, the woman, and the disciples. And we're gonna look at those in, in uh, that order, beginning with Jesus. And the story in, in Mark 7, by the way, I'm already using my bookmark in my Bible, and I encourage you to do the same. I can never have enough bookmarks, so thank you for that. Uh, the story begins in, in Mark 7, it, kind of mysteriously, because this is what it says, Jesus went to the vicinity of Tyre and didn't want anyone to know. What's going on? Well, uh, is, if, if Israel is here and Tyre's next door, right? Think Greater Puget Sound region, Marysville, or something like that, right? Jesus has been hanging out in the Greater Puget Sound uh, doing ministry, and every time he does something, 
because it's miraculous and powerful. It's drawing a crowd and the crowds are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so that Jesus finds himself always on and decides to go to Tyre for a little kind of mini vacation. Like he's really going up there. Uh, it says he went up and he didn't want anyone to know. Why? Because uh, he's, he's spent and he needs, he needs a break. So Jesus leaves the Jewish provinces, walks about a day's walk to end up in entire Gentile territory just in order to get some rest. So that sets the stage, right? Jesus is uh, on a, like a, a Sabbath day, basically, day off. Now, into this story comes uh, the woman. So now we're up in, the, in Gentile territory, and this woman hears of Jesus' arrival, and because it's right next door, because it's Marysville, right, geographically, she's heard by reputation already of Jesus, knows that he has a supernatural power to bring healing and deliverance in, 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 into people's lives, and, and so she makes her way to Jesus. She finds Jesus, goes out boldly seeking Jesus. Even though she's Syrophoenician, Gentile, uh, and, and she's kind of in five ways disqualified to be in a relationship with Jesus, according to conventional wisdom. Five ways. First of all, uh, she's a Phoenician. Second, larger category, she's a Gentile. Third, she's a pagan. She doesn't believe in this God necessarily. We have no hint that she believes in this God. Uh, fourth, she's a, she's a woman. And fifth, her daughter has an unclean spirit. All of those things disqualify her to seek out a rabbi for some sort of blessing or some sort of instruction, let alone a, a rabbi who's performing supernatural miracles. She's in five ways disqualified. And she knows this. She knows that in every way, according to the standards of the day, She's unclean and therefore unable to approach any devout Jew, let alone a rabbi, let alone the Messiah. But here's the thing. Though I'm unqualified, I don't care. That's this woman. And that's powerful, right? So she, she enters the house without an invitation and she falls down on her knees in front of Jesus and she's begging Jesus to take the demon out of her daughter. She's begging Right? And the verb here regarding begging is present progressive, which simply means this. She keeps on begging. She's asking and asking and asking over and over again, asking Jesus uh, to uh, deliver the demon out of her daughter. Nothing and no one can stop her. In Matthew's gospel, in chapter 15, there's a parallel account. The disciples are kind of watching this unfold and they hear the woman and, and they... After a while, they get annoyed, and so they say to Jesus, send her away. Come on, we're here for some rest. Tell her to leave, right? And she ignores them and just keeps asking, right? So she's pleading with Jesus, won't take no for an answer. Now, why is that? Well, uh, I loved the story that we just heard read, that, that Pam read. She, <laughs> there's a phrase you use in that story that the woman wrote, apparently, I want strength to fight for my daughter. What a great phrase. Strength, and most moms, not all, but most moms want that. Most moms have that inherently. Like this fierce, relentless for their kids. And that's one of the things that we celebrate on Mother's Day, right? Moms are that way. It's, it's biological, it's spiritual, it's emotional, it's everything. Moms are cool that way. They're for their kids. It's wonderful. My wife I feel like 
is such an amazing parent to my children to this day, right? More than me. That's how I feel anyway. And I think most men feel that way if they're honest, but maybe not. I don't know. So that's whatever. Uh, she's, a, she's a great mom with exactly what this woman wrote, with strength to fight for her daughter. She's fighting for her daughter. Now, I want to make sure, though, that we don't confine this to moms because all, she's exemplary for all of us. And there's three things that motivate her. Compassion, humility, and persistence. And I want to look at those three things and learn from those three things. So let's begin with this. This woman has compassion for her daughter. And the word compassion literally means, when you break it up, calm, passion, means with suffer means to suffer with. If you're compassionate, it means you suffer with someone. I don't know if you know this or not, but in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, this is what we're told. All of us is an exhortation. Put on a heart of compassion. Like if you have Christ, put on a heart of compassion. You're called to live a life of suffering with. That's your calling. And all, all of us in the room know not only the word compassion at a level, but we also know this reality. Who's heard this phrase, compassion fatigue? Have you heard it in the room? Many of us have heard the phrase, compassion fatigue. We live in a kind of a 24-7 news cycle where we are continually assaulted with the suffering of our world, right? You cannot live without being aware of problem after problem. There's a politically induced famine in in Yemen, there's political unrest throughout Africa, Boko Haram in Nigeria, right? Uh, uprisings in South Africa, nuclear stuff in Iran, poverty in, in North Korea, homelessness at Green Lake, needles in the alley here, right where I live. I mean, everywhere you go, trouble. And one of the problems is, like, when I'm, when I'm assaulted, when it's an avalanche of suffering, I, I no longer see the snowflake. Does that make sense? Like, all I see is suffering everywhere, and I disengage to save my own soul, and I check out. And, and then along comes Jesus. He says, put on a heart of compassion. What does that mean exactly? Well, here's the thing. I will never have compassion in an avalanche unless I learn to pay attention to the snowflake, the one. I must have Literally, eyes to see the one. And the mom in this story sees the daughter. Eventually, we'll see Jesus sees the mom. Like, we have to pay attention and allow God to kind of burst the bubble that is our lives where we build walls so that we are living suddenly in solidarity with someone because we've seen them. And by see, I don't mean I see, like, oh, you're a bodily, you're physically there and I got to move around you. I mean, I see you. I've been with you. I've heard your story. I know your suffering. I know your need. That's seeing. And, and, and if we're not willing to have our lives disrupted by seeing, we will never be people of compassion. And if we're not people of compassion, we will never represent the heart of Christ. That's just the way it is. I have to have, I have, to have eyes to see. I'm reading a book right now entitled Walking the Bridgeless Canyon, subtitle, Repairing the Breach Between the Church and the LGBT Community. Powerful book. Kathy Baldock is the author. This is what she said. She said, Back in my previous life, and the break was so huge for her that she literally calls it a previous life. Back in my previous life, she said, I remember sitting with my evangelical friends, four women in a circle, saying, gay people, I don't know any gay people. And then, and then moving into like this excoriating judgment of all things related to sexual identity in this little conversation, coffee. And then, here's what happened. Uh, her husband 
left her, filed for divorce, and she found her whole life, her whole world collapsed. In her collapsed world, uh, she did two things as part of her kind of recovery and building a new life. Number one, she decided to take a class to learn Italian. So she signs up to learn Italian, community, community uh, college. And second, she would hike in this canyon every day. Hike in a canyon. Well, in her Italian class, there's a, she gets assigned to work on a project and there's a partner. And her partner is a gay man. She goes, oh, I know a gay person now. That's fantastic. Then... She's walking in this canyon, and uh, there's the same woman every day walking, so they begin walking together. It's a lesbian woman. And, and then, I'll paraphrase, but this is what she says. My life changed, and my, watch this, my theology changed because I heard their story. Oh, this is, I gotta tell you, this is really, really important. My theology... Did you hear that? My theology... Now listen, the Bible's good. You know that. Like, I'm here to tell you the Bible's good. <laughs> We're not anti-Bible here. Here's what I'm saying to you this morning, though. Theology shaped in a vacuum will always be bad. Like, I just take the Bible and fly to the moon and figure out what God thinks about this and that and the other thing. I'll come back with bad theology every time. Because if my theology of immigrants and migrations is formed without ever meeting an immigrant, then it's bad theology. If my theology on homelessness is formed without ever talking to a homeless person, then it's bad theology. If my theology of addiction is formed without ever talking to an addict, it's bad, it becomes bad theology. My theology is shaped as God shows the relevance of scriptures intersecting the reality of humanity. I remember way back in like 1991, I started teaching at Torchwood Bible Schools and in about 91, I was at school in Colorado, and um, uh, a student uh, stayed behind to talk to me. I, te I was teaching Genesis, and if you know the story of Jacob and Esau, uh, Jacob, uh, Esau's called Harry, and Jacob is called Smooth. And I kind of turned that into a, uh, you know, super macho and effeminate, right? By using two different voices. Whole class is just laughing, you know, ha, ah, it's amazing, you know, oh, Richard's so funny. One student stays behind and he comes up to me, he says, hey, can we talk after? All the students leave and then his student starts to cry. He says, I hope you never do that again. Really? I thought it was pretty funny, that's what I said. He said, yeah, you're not gay. And I thought, man, no, I'm not gay. And I, I would say no, and I've never really had this conversation either. 91, 1991. Then we had meals together, we went on walks together. Theology shaped by relationship is different than theology created in a vacuum. This woman, what? She sees, she sees her daughter. Put on a heart of compassion. Second, this woman has humility. This is Really, just as important. Because when you read this story, there are power structures in, in, in play that make the story, make a, we feel really uncomfortable reading the story. Listen to this. She's, you know, continually begging, hey, cast a demon out of my daughter. She says it over and over again. And then Jesus says, this is Jesus' response. Listen to this. Let the children be satisfied first. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw to the dogs. Now, isn't that a beautiful exemplary response to somebody in need? 
right? Like we teach this in pastoral care classes. This is how you care for people. No, not at all. Like on the surface, this looks, you know, really bad. But here's, here's what Jesus seems to be saying. He's saying, look, I was sent to Israel first. That's why he says, it's, uh, it's not good. What did he say? Let the children be satisfied first. So he's using a meal parable. And he says, look, there's children. And then the, 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 there's two words for dog in Greek. There's like, like, like wild dogs, which were predominant. And there's pets. And he says, hey, let the children eat first. And then the pets get fed next. So he's, this is what he's saying, I think. He's saying, look, I, I was sent first to Israel. Why? Because God's desire has always been that Israel will be kind of this honey to bees. And if all the Gentiles are bees and Israel's the honey, then God is trying to draw everyone into this remarkable monotheistic uh, view of the world that leads to peace and blessing and prosperity and justice. And so I'm sent first to these people and I've been on. I've been on down in Israel and now I'm here and I'm, I'm not here because I'm sent here. I'm sent to Israel. That's what he's saying. And, and, and so it's like it... It could appear kind of classist, right? Uh, the abundance of blessing would be poured out first on Israel. But here's the thing, and this is the point. The woman hears that, and she's like this, I don't care. I don't care that you're sent to them first. I believe, this is the woman, I believe that you're willing and able to help everyone, including me. Now, here's what's so important in this story. Hear this. Had, when Jesus said that, it would have been very easy for her to say, yeah, I thought so. Just another, you know, rock star Messiah with no time for the common man and walked away. She could have said that. She might have even, like, on, at least on the surface, it would have been justifiable, right? Like, come on, I pour my heart out to you and this is the answer? Forget it. She could have said that. She could argue theology with him. Hey, Jesus, sounds like you're a dispensationalist, man. They, like, you came for Israel first, and can we talk about that? Because I actually think I'm a covenant theologian in some nascent way, and I kind of believe that, you know, we're all Israel now, and so I have rights to the food just like you. Can we, let's, hey, let's talk theology. Let's talk dispensationalism. Let's talk eschatology. Let's talk philosophy. Let's talk systems. She could have been mad at the man. She wasn't. Or maybe she was. But here's the thing. This is what she said. I don't care. Because if I leave out of anger, or if I sit here and have a theological discussion, then once the dust clears, my daughter still has a demon. And what's the most important thing in this story? My daughter is sick. Not theology. My daughter is sick. That's what matters. Man, I hope we learn to be like the woman. Because if I can be blunt, the church has a long history of debating things that don't matter and ignoring what matters the most. We live, in a, we live in a world where there are a lot of sick daughters and sons. You know what I mean by that? Sick with poverty, sick with addiction, sick with confusion, suicidal over sexual identity, suicidal over being marginalized. So most of us in the room are Gentiles, just like the woman. All of us are in need of receiving mercy from Christ. But as I grow older, I've kind of seen kind of two categories of humanity. The first category is this. Uh, people who, when, when there's something wrong in their lives, when they're suffering, they end up getting mad at the system out there and disengaging. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I'll tell you why. You know, I didn't get a job. That stupid HR person who interviewed me. 
And they're like, I'm just mad. I'll tell you why. You know, oh, the healthcare system is terrible. Oh, the Republicans are terrible. Oh, the Democrats are terrible. You know, it's, all the, it's always the system. It's my boss. It's the man. It's, it's, a, it's structural. Now listen, I get it. There's structural problems. Here's the thing. For this woman, doesn't matter. Because here's her posture. I don't, yeah, structural problems, fine. Help me. <laughs> That's what matters. Like, we can't solve every structure. But we can't, all of a sudden, we've got to learn to live like this. First, to live like this. The humility of this woman. I don't know why. It's all the cancer, all the homelessness. Why, in our own lives, we have addictions we can't seem to get rid of. We have, you know, marital tensions. We have aging parents. We have children who are sick. I don't know. Here, God, help. That's the posture of this woman. Because if you kind of give God the finger and say, yeah, I thought so, and you walk away or you drift away, then fine, you drift away, the daughter is still sick. Empty hands, humility. Third thing with her that's kind of impressive is her persistence. She will not take no for an answer, right? And this is so interesting because you see this all through the Bible. One of my favorite illustrations of it is Jacob in the Old Testament. And so if you guys know the story of Jacob, Jacob is this, uh, he's this guy who's stolen and cheated and he married, you know, four women and now he has all these sons and he's been away in the far country and he's coming home and he's afraid about reconciling with his brother who the last time he heard from him, his brother said he was going to kill Jacob. And so the night, the night before he heads home, it says in Genesis 32, he wrestled with God. Now this is a really interesting Sorry, and it's, it could be its own sermon, but not today. But just for the moment today, here's the thing to see. Who's wrestled in the room? Anybody? Anybody involved in wrestling? If you've ever wrestled, right? A round in wrestling, two minutes. And after two minutes, you are spent because it's exhausting. And this is what you read in the text. Jacob wrestled with God all night. And then at the end of the night, it's... It says, and dawn was breaking, so God says to Jacob, let me go. Nathan, can you come up here and be God just for a minute? <laughs> It'll make your mom proud. She's here this morning, yeah. So, I mean, God's the big guy. Jacob's the little guy. And, 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 and they're wrestling. And then what Jacob does at the end is he hangs on like this. And then what, is, what does God say? What does God say, remember? God says a lot of things. But he says, let go. Let go. Dawn is breaking. I want to leave. God is tired. Do you get it? And then what does Jacob say? Does anyone know the story? What does Jacob say? He says, no, I won't let you go until you bless me. Thank you. Thank Nathan. Thank you very much. <laughs> like, like, keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Don't ever stop. I say this to people pastorally all the time. Hey, go through a dark valley. I get it. You want to be mad at God? Be mad at God. You confused? Be confused. You upset? Be upset. Just don't walk away. That's the beauty of the Psalms. It's, it's engagement with God. Even when God feels absent. Don't you love David? God, where are you? Like, think about that for a minute. That's a paradoxical statement. If he's not there, why are you talking to him? Right? Because faith keeps showing up. And that's this woman. 
I remember uh, my first year at Seattle Pacific, um, I was kind of depressed and questioning my move away from architecture, and then I got a letter from a, an old girlfriend that really made me mad, and anyway, whatever. You don't need to hear all the details. All right, so I, there's a chapel at Seattle Pacific in little Alexander Hall there, and I went up into that chapel, and I don't know if it's this way now, but nobody went there when I was there, like nobody was ever in the chapel. And so I went in, in there, and there's pews, and I laid down not on a pew, because I didn't want to be seen. I laid under a pew, two in the afternoon. I said, God, I'm not leaving until you, you tell me how I should respond to this thing. I just don't, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm staying here. Four hours I stayed laying there, right? But I'll tell you what, I got up knowing God better. This is the point. Do you understand? Like intimacy with God requires persistence. Keep showing up. That's this text. You see those things, and then we see those things in the woman, right? Persistence, humility, compassion. Then uh, the last group of characters, still under point one, (laughs) last group of characters, the disciples, right? And the disciples, um, you see uh, from the beginning, they're human, Jesus is human, Jesus is also divine, but the disciples in their humanity, they want to send the woman away. Jesus in his humanity receives the woman. Now, watch this. They're both tired, right? And they both wanted to get away, so they both have boundaries, right? But what Jesus has that sets him apart from the disciples is very important. Jesus has what I call permeable boundaries. This is a very important principle, to have permeable boundaries. Are boundaries a good thing? Absolutely. Every, all of us in the room need boundaries. That's why God invented the Sabbath, among other things, right? We all need boundaries. We all need, and if you, like, if no is not in your vocabulary, then the word that is in your vocabulary is ineffective. Because if you're saying yes to everything, then you're functionally good for nobody, and you end up burning out. So uh, we need boundaries, but if my boundary is a 30-foot-high brick wall and no one can ever get in, then I'm missing God's story. I have to be interruptible. And, and Jesus is, he, like, at the beginning, he's walking and doesn't even answer her, but she keeps asking. And eventually, Jesus stops, interacts with her, and her daughter's healed. Jesus is, has permeable boundaries. And, and as you're hearing the principle, you may be asking, well, how do I know? How do I know when to speak and when not to speak? In other words, the answer would be, look, uh, the Holy Spirit, as we saw last week, kind of drops into your life and then you know, ah, this is a moment I'm going to engage. Then you know. So I'm on a train in Germany and I have a book that I'm going to read and I've spoken at a conference and I'm, it, I'm tired after speaking. It was that thing, not this year, but a previous year, where I'm just on. I'm on from 8 in the morning till 10 at night and now, oh, good, I have like a three-hour train ride and I'm sitting on the train, and then this woman comes up who was at the conference, and she says, oh, three hours, fantastic. And she got like 20 questions, right, about theology and calling and marriage, and oh, baby, yeah, okay, good, yeah, permeable boundaries. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like we need these permeable, we need boundaries, but they have to be permeable. And she, Jesus has that. Are your boundaries permeable? I hope so. 
Because otherwise, if, if no one can break through, if Jeff's walking across the campus and a student is like, I need you. And every time his answer is only in the office, make an appointment, you know, that's the wrong answer. If it's the, if it's the only answer, our boundaries must be perfect. So, all that is act one. We've, we've met the disciples, Jesus the one. Now, act two, Jesus' response. Well, we've already seen it. Act three, her counter response. <laughs> Jesus said, sent to Israel, puppies don't get the food first. Her counter response I mean, she could have said, good point, and walked away. She doesn't. She argues with God. Who does that? People who believe that God is good and be, who want intimacy. They just, she wants intimacy. And intimacy is honesty. So this is what she, hey, I was sent first to Israel, and hello, I'm in Tyre. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table Get to eat the children's crumbs. And then he says, For such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home, found her child lying on the bed, the demon gone. In other words, she says, Yes, Lord, but the puppies eat from the table too, and I'm here for mine now. Jesus told her a parable. He's given her a combination of challenge and offer. She gets it and says, Okay, I understand. I'm not from Israel. I don't worship Israel's God. I'm a woman. I'm a Gentile. I'm unclean. By virtue of my daughter, I'm unclean again. I don't have a place at the table. I get it. But, all right, even though I don't have a place at the table, there's more than enough on that table for everyone in the world. And so I'm asking you for my portion now. That's what she says. Tremendous faith, actually. Let me just make a couple observations before we close. She doesn't have everything right theologically. Neither do I. Neither do you. Whatever. We'll get there when we're dead. <laughs> In the meantime, let's understand, we don't need to have everything right in order to approach Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't understand everything. I don't understand eschatology. I don't understand revelation. I don't understand dispensationalism. I don't understand logical positivism. I can't even say logical positivism. I, I, don't, I don't get it. Whatever. I have kids. I love them. I want to see them thrive. I have friends who've been suicidal over their sexual identity. I don't want that to happen. I know I live in a city where tens of thousands don't have a safety net relationally. Do I have all my theology together? No. God, I'm here anyway. That's, I hope, Bethany. Second, the byproduct of this persistency is intimacy, all through the Bible. The people who know God best talk back to God, right? And they keep showing up. Abraham bargains with God. Remember, they're going to destroy that city. Well, uh, if there's 50 righteous, oh, well, 50, what about 40? And, you know, then this bargaining thing happens. And Moses argues with God, and God changes his mind. And Amos, and Jeremiah, and David, everybody who's intimate with God does this thing. It's really good. Because this becomes the beauty of the gospel. It's not that God's up there dishing out suffering. Never. It's that we live in a broken world, and in a world where people are actively opposing the reign of God because of fear and pride and believing lies, the fallout of that resistance of God's reign is 
oceans of suffering all around us. And yet, we're invited to be voices and feet and hands of healing in the midst of that suffering. So we're invited first to be that girl, every one of us to be that girl. Empty hands, like facing my own brokenness. Maybe this is the biggest challenge in a room like this. My suspicion is in our upwardly mobile, predominantly white, well-educated community, when we tell a story like this, we're all wondering, man, am I, who, who am I in the story? Am I Jesus? Or am I the woman who's the helper, you know? No, you're the girl. I'm the girl. If we don't start there, then we're not even on the board. What's your brokenness? But here's the good news. When I come to God in my brokenness, God heals me, and that makes me like the daughter. But God so fills me and gives me new eyes that I can now live in this world with compassion, and that makes me like the mom. And as I live in this world with compassion, I become nothing less than the presence of Jesus himself. As we'll celebrate in just a moment when we say here, Christ's body, now your body. Christ's life, now your life. The one group you don't want to be in that story, the disciples. Too busy, highly educated religiously, insiders who can't see. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this amazing story that really has ripped my heart open this week. And I pray that it would rip each of our hearts open in a good way so that we seeing our own need might receive all that you are in order that we might then see the world differently in order that we might become each one of us the presence of your life in our world. May we always be the woman, the child, and the risen Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. On the night that Christ was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took the bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm offering a strength you don't have, so that you now, in my physical absence, can be nothing less than my presence on the earth. The presence of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then after giving the bread, he took the cup, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it, so that your life now pouring, my life now pouring through you can allow you to represent my heart in our world. May you receive. As the servers come, I'm going to encourage you at a tactical level to take the bread as individuals, just being, praying over your own brokenness and receive Christ's strength. And then would you hold the cup, we'll take it together signifying our unity in Christ. All the bread is gluten-free, so you don't need to worry about that. If you need gluten, later, all right? <laughs> Let's worship.